I want you to do me a favor. Yeah, sure. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. What? Let it out. I want you to hit me. Trust me. Come on. Come on. Stop trying to hit me and hit me. Hit me, baby, one more time. And now, our feature presentation. All right, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Hit Me One More Time, the Nostalgia Reflection Podcast that looks at the things that we loved when we were younger and asks the question, is this good? I'm David Luzader. I'm not alone on this journey. I have one man with me always, and that is Nick Shermooksness. Nick, hello. Hey, David. How's it going once again? Good. I got a new chair, so uh, it's great. I haven't had like a computer chair in like seven years. I've been using like crappy kitchen chairs, so I'm just in a whole new, like this is a whole new game for me. You have now joined the elite class. I thought you were going to say I'm just sitting on a bunch of milk crates. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that voice there, uh, possibly podcasting from a bunch of milk crates, I'm, I'm sure he'll let us know is our guest for this week. He is an author and the other half of Ake Willow. It is J.F. DeBeau. J.F., welcome to the show. Hey, David. Hey, Nick. And yes, I am podcasting uh, live from a lean-to under a bridge, um, <laughs> sitting on milk crates, keeping warm with a burning barrel of crap. It's This, this is how I leave my, lead my life. Listen, everyone knows that Wi-Fi is the best under bridges. Absolutely. Concrete is awesome. It really amplifies that signal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, JF, we're glad that you're here, and we're uh, excited to discuss this week's topic, which you brought to us, which is none other than aliens. 1986 classic. Yes, this 1986 sci-fi action film follows Ripley after the events of the alien Discovered in cryosleep 57 years after the xenomorph attack on the Nostromo, Ripley attempts to warn Weyland yutani of the alien threat on planet LV-426, where a human colony now resides. When contact with the colony is lost, Ripley joins a group of space marines to go investigate what happened. It's it's mostly uh, a fun family romp after that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lots of values. I mean, family there's a family. family in the special edition, so That's you're true. not wrong. I mean, and you could argue that the the queen alien, all all those other aliens are her family. So it's true, though. I, I, I imagine the humans were kind of unfriendly towards said family. It was it was a bit uh, conflicted. One could easily argue that the entire movie thematic is all about family. It's true. This is this was a Fast and Furious before Fast and Furious. <laughs> this just uh sigourney reaver wearing like a gold silver chain or whatever it is that dom wears and just talking about the importance of family while driving a fast car into a xenomorph she does drive a fast car into a xenomorph though it's true yeah pats and the furious aliens reser covenant are we are just digging in and immediately discovering that Vin Diesel is just our generation? Well, I guess your generation. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. I don't know what your age is. I, I assume everyone's younger than me because I'm decrepit. Uh, yeah, I would say, yes, I would say Vin Diesel and Sigourney Weaver are on par. <laughs> no, exactly the same person. <laughs> as far right. as cultural importance. Oh. Yes. Well, that's right. It's like it's like when you say who's the next Meryl Streep, but in this case, it's who's the next Sigourney Weaver. Yes, it's Vin Diesel. Yes, it's Vin Diesel. Is that, I think that's going to be our first shirt. 
is <laughs> it's just it's a picture of Vin Diesel, half Vin Diesel's face, half Sigourney Weaver's, and it'll just say Vin Diesel is my generation's Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Both of them have an extremely confused look on their face. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I on this shirt? Exactly. Uh, well, we like to before we uh, get into. I hopefully our discussion is not just this the whole time, but let's see. Before we get into that, though. Uh, we oh, like, no, I have a lot to say. Yes. We like to discuss our own personal histories with the topic with aliens. And uh, Jay, since you brought this to the show, what is your history with aliens? I had an extremely difficult time um, picking a, a something because I don't do nostalgia much. Mm. I like the 80s were terrible for me. It's just much, <laughs> mostly bullying and getting mocked by classmates. So I, I don't want to remember it as much. But Aliens is Aliens is probably the first movie that maybe realized that there was something about the horror sci-fi genre that I really enjoyed, which was transitional for me because everything else. I, I thought the scene where that woman gets turned into a robot in Superman 2 was terrifying, was not very good with scary scenes or movies until aliens, which was just absolutely brilliant. Like the mix of action and, and terror worked in a way that made me realize, Oh wait, no, there is something to this and I am going to explore it to a fault. Hmm. And yes, that is uh, you know, I did not get a, uh, I did not do this earlier because we got distracted by Sigourney Weaver and Vin Diesel. Um, <laughs> as you do, as you do. I just want to take a, a chance real quick. Uh, that's a, a great, Jumping off point, uh, JF, can you just like for people who may not be fully aware of your work, just how has this movie then like influenced you? Because you're 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 an author of some very great works. You write Ake Willow. Obviously, this is in your wheelhouse. But just uh, give people an overview of you. I'm extremely boring, so I would rather point people towards my works. Uh, obviously, Ake Willow is a podcast that I write so that N Amy Frost can narrate it. It's a cozy horror podcast where we, we try to make a, a fun blend of baking, demons, horror, and coffee. Otherwise, I write books, and coincidentally, I wrote, I have two published works right now, The Life Engineered, which is science fiction, and A God in the Shed, which is horror. Mix the two, and you get sci-fi horror, and that's, that's Aliens, which is just my roots, and this is why I brought this to the table. Yep. Can I just say that I really enjoy the, the the term cozy horror, like just this idea that I'm going to like cuddle up on the couch under a nice warm blanket in front of a fire in a cabin secluded in the woods and then pee myself. <laughs> right. That's how you keep warm. <laughs> well, uh, Nick, what is your history? I was trying to think of a transition with peeing yourself, but I just I was just like, nope, I'm gonna hard bail on that. <laughs> you just <laughs> think of a good way to stream right into this. Uh, so aliens. Um. So actually, my I've never seen aliens. Uh, I really like the naming convention though of the you know in the sense that like alien was hey we have one alien and then the really the logline or whatever of aliens was it's the first one but there's more of them hence aliens. Um, but actually, my journey with the Alien franchise started with Alien Resurrection. Um, oh, man, I'm so sorry. So, so <laughs> it, now, I, I saw it when I was younger, uh, much younger, or whenever around, I think, the time when maybe when it came out. And, I mean, back then, I didn't know really what was a bad movie, right? Like, my palate hadn't quite become sophisticated. So, like, 
I don't remember a lot about the movie, but I didn't necessarily hate it. I also just didn't understand anything that was going on. And yeah, it was terrifying. Um, so that worked for me. And then at some point down the road, I finally saw Alien uh, and liked it. Um, and then I think I, I did see Prometheus and I haven't seen Covenant or Alien 3. So uh, not a huge connection to the franchise or history, but I am certainly familiar with it. What about the Alien versus Predator movies? Oh, I think I actually did see the first one of those. All right. For me, my journey with the Alien franchise starts way before like I ever saw it. I shouldn't say journey, but I should say uh, it, its roots in my life are way before I ever saw the movies. I yesterday had this distinct memory while watching this of uh, one time when I was reading the the Animorph books, and uh, they, they used the word host. They were talking about humans being horse ho- hosts for the uh, the uh, what are those? What were the aliens called in that? The like uh, the horde or the no, it was the the ones that go in your ear, whatever the little slugs that go in your ear. Yergs or yergs, the yergs, yes, like yes. Uh, and I, I was asking my mom, "What's a host?" And I'm like, in my memory, I don't think this is exactly what she said, but it was something very along the lines of like, "Well, have you seen Alien?" Uh, to her ten year old son, something like that. Uh, so I had should not, she not be aware <laughs> of your horror movie consumption habits. at that age? You would think. <laughs> well, also, I remember having toys from the aliens franchise i i don't know if like maybe they were like my brothers that got passed down or what but i i had some like weird xenomorph toys like they, they were aliens i remember like the little mouth coming out when you open the head up uh and i just love that the 80s that there was this era of like ah hard r movie lots of blood and violence let's make toys for kids and sometimes uh <laughs> animated shows it, i like to call that the golden age really <laughs> i mean honestly I will add an addendum that I do believe I had the Ripley using the heavy loader, whatever it was called, the yellow walking machine mech thing. Power loader. Power loader. There we go. Uh, I do believe I actually had that toy as a kid. Nice. Not having any idea where it actually came from. Yeah. I didn't uh, see the movies then until uh, probably college. I think I was in college. At my friend Chris's house, um, Chris was like the cool guy who knew like all the movies and uh was was always showing them to us and i remember we did a a double feature of alien and aliens it was like two in the morning when we started aliens and uh, i think i fell asleep during my first viewing because it was you know 3 a.m at that time and uh, later would would fully see it and i have a deep love of alien for sure and i We'll get into to aliens. I still like it. I don't think I like it as much as Alien itself. I've seen Alien a bunch, but I have never seen beyond Aliens, except for the Alien versus Predator movies. Um, un- unfortunately, I guess. Uh, but yeah, quite quite frankly, I mean, I I've seen all, pretty much all of them, and Aliens is really where it peaked, and it, it goes downhill afterwards. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that because I it's so odd to me that these these first two movies were so are so well loved and are so well regarded that they keep making movies even when so many of them have been like panned or haven't done very well. It's kind of the same thing as the Terminator films, right? Like the first two were really the hallmarks and then it just kind of 
has been down. No matter how many times they try to reinvent it, it just doesn't seem to work for some reason. The moment James Cameron walks into the room, he just really urinates in all the corners and, and <laughs> delineates his territory to make sure that everybody like this is mine. If any if anybody's going to do something good afterwards, it'll be me and me alone. Well, we're about to learn that Terminator actually helped this movie get made. Because, Nick, why don't you tell us a bit about just the general history of Aliens? All right, strap in, people. Uh, Brandywine Productions was intent on making a sequel to Alien just after the movie's release in the late 70s. However, new ownership at Fox was not interested in making the movie right away, as some felt Alien wasn't successful enough for a sequel, The Fool. Producers came across James Cameron's script for Terminator and tapped him to make the sequel. While working on production for Terminator, Cameron was able to write 90 pages of the script for Aliens, uh, and Larry Gordon, Fox's president, was so impressed that he told Cameron that he could direct the movie if Terminator was a success. Spoilers, it was. The Vietnam War was cited as a major influence on the script for Aliens. Uh, Sigourney Weaver was unsure about returning as Ripley until she met and spoke with Cameron. But Fox refused to initially sign a contract with Weaver over a payment dispute and asked Cameron to write a new script without Ripley. Cameron pushed back and Fox relented. Troubles continued into filming, however, as the low budget and deadline put stress on the crew and most of the crew were holdovers from Alien and fiercely loyal to Ridley Scott. They believed the 31-year-old Cameron was too young and too experienced to direct. Clashes continued at all stages of production and pre-screenings were not possible due to the film not being ready until one week before release. However, Aliens released on July 18, 1986 to universal acclaim and grossed 10 times its budget. The film was later nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Actress for Weaver and won for Best Visual Effects and Sound Effects Editing. There's, there's something even more interesting uh, regarding how they got Sigourney Weaver to come back for the role is that Cameron wouldn't do the film without Sigourney Weaver. And what he did is he sort of had a casual chat and let the, I think it was, I think it was um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's agent know that he was going to do the opposite. Like he was, he was going to write Sigourney Weaver out because he knew that this information would somehow make it up to Fox and pressure Fox into agreeing to Sigourney Weaver's contract. Anyways, a lot of back, like, cloak and dagger ways of actually getting the studio to front the money to get Sigourney Weaver on the project. Nice. It's definitely a gambit if he's, like, pushing the idea that she'll get replaced in, the in like, the reverse psychology way of getting her on the project. The one thing, the first, that's the first thing I kind of want to talk about is really just, like, the idea of aliens without Ripley, without Sigourney Weaver. Like, this whatever other merits this movie has i mean she's carrying it entirely like th this movie i don't want to say could absolutely not exist but in my mind i don't i don't, I don't see a, a version of this that works without ripley it's certainly not the way it works right now yeah the, well right now they worked in 86 which is my right now because Ripley's role, Ripley as a character, her relationship with Nude, her entire arc is the emotional underpinning of the movie. And you can't replace that by having just any new random character shoved in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, well, and uh, well, I guess we'll just go ahead and talk about it now before we get to, like too much in the meat of the discussion. There's a deleted scene in this movie 
that um, I think changes so much the tone of it that I'm, I'm really sad we don't get. Uh, Jay, if you kind of alluded to it earlier, do you just want to kind of like talk a little bit more about that? Well, there, there are several deleted scenes and those scenes, Sigourney Weaver was angry. Like she, she was livid that the scenes were removed because of what they, what they bring to that part of the story. Uh, one of the scenes is at, um, at the station, um, what's it called? Gateway, I think. Yes. The space station where she's, she's brought uh, after being taken out of, of cryostasis from the narcissist. She, uh, there, there's a scene where she's looking at a photo of her daughter who died while she was in cryostasis, while she was gone for those 57 years. And quote unquote, that's actually a photo. The photo they use is of Sigourney Weaver's mom, which is interesting. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but it, it basically just highlights the idea that's, that Ripley had, uh, had a life before these events, lost that life, and, and she lost her daughter, who was, at the time of her departure, roughly the age of, of Newt, the, the, the child that they pick up at Hadley's station, uh, Hadley's Hope station uh, on LV-426. The other scene that they deleted is kind of like the flip side of that story is the scene where Newt loses her family, where they discover they're sent to the to the the, the ship, the, the space jockey's ship where all the eggs are, and her father gets caught by a face hugger. And basically this this is what starts the um, the chain reaction where the, the terraforming station gets overrun by aliens. So we see the origin of both these characters losing their family and setting it up so that they can become each other's family, which also sets up why Alien 3 is garbage. But <laughs> we'll move on from there. Yeah. Interesting. Alien 3, the, the movie where, they, hey, let's just kill three characters off screen right at the beginning. Great. But we're, we're not talking about Alien 3. We're talking about aliens. I think... When I when I first learned that those scenes were removed and like watching, I think this is like the first time I've really watched it since I've I learned that information. Uh, I, it does lose something. I think those scenes. I mean, it works fine without them, but I think that there would have been more to these characters and their relationship if both of those had been included. Right, and I'll say so. Am I? I agree that it worked fine without them, but that's but that's kind of what the point I'm hitting home is that it worked fine mm -hmm. like i sort of recognize that there was this maternal relationship between ripley and newt but it kind of felt like oh female character like has yeah. to be maternal in some fashion uh and even though te technically this deleted scene still just reinforces that there's like a deeper personal connection to why she's so persistent in the narrative to keep newt alive um that isn't really reflected in the film and then to a point that jf made earlier like Yes, this is the emotional underpinning of the film, but really it's the only emotional underpinning. Like, I don't know if maybe if it wasn't the, the point, but I found most of the Marines like obnoxious, if not forgettable. So when when they finally start getting taken out, it's just more of a like a checklist of, you know, getting them taken care of. And then when you get to that climax of Ripley going to rescue Newt, like that's where I kind of got reengaged and like thought that it was just I was much more invested at that point. I mean, um, I I disagree about the Marines because I feel that there was like there's a tour de force in how these characters are introduced that makes them with very little information makes them all very real. But 
it, it does pale in comparison. Like it, it's it's a three versus the ten that is the the emotional arc for Ripley. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it's 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 not so much. I mean, I, I did think that they were obnoxious, but I do think that like when they came on screen, like they were their personalities were identifiable, even though you didn't really know a lot about them. It, but still, there wasn't enough for me to go on at least to like really agonize over their deaths. I mean, you don't agonize over their deaths because like you say, like you don't get to know them very well. You get to know a few of them, but there is the way the characters are introduced. There was like those few minutes, maybe 15 minutes aboard the, uh, the Sulaco when they're just coming out of hypersleep is a masterclass in defining every one of these characters from all these interactions. You can already see how every one of these Marines is going to react to what's coming to them. And it just, it just, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. If I've never seen characters, even shallow characters, be given an introduction that outlines them so perfectly. It is. Like, I, I, there are a few of them that I think are, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say like underdeveloped, but are not very developed um, because they're, you know, the cannon fodder. They're the ones that are going to kind of like go out first. And the ones that are more recognizable are the ones that, stick around a little bit longer. I do think there it is a good introduction of them because you immediately kind of see how they all interact, how they interplay, how they work together. Like you said, you get the sense of like, they're not taking this super seriously. They think it's going to be, I don't know, like this. all these people just disappeared, whatever, we'll go deal with it, go home, great. They don't know what they're in for. One thing watching this one, uh, watching it this time, and I probably felt this in the past, but just really felt it this time, Bill Paxton's character is so annoying. And uh, I, that's like a credit to Bill Paxton. He, he does a, he's doing a good job of acting there because, uh, you know, he, he has that classic line, game over, man, game over. But around that time when he starts like freaking out, I'm just like, oh, okay. All right, Hudson, just calm this, down. This is, this is uh, Hudson's a perfect example of what I mean because in his introduction you can see like he's very cocksure, very arrogant, very like like obnoxious, but they immediately show how he cracks under pressure. So even before they leave the dropship, you know that when when the crap hits the proverbial fan, he's going to crack because they've told us he would. And all the characters have a bit of that foreshadowing, even Frost, which is the first Marine to get taken out, you, he, he, his fatalism kind of foreshadows his fate. Interesting. He's like, there, he's got, I think three instances where he says he's got a bad feeling about this. He wants to quit this job. Like everything about Frost says, Oh yeah, that guy's going to die. And I mean, if you want to go into the cliche of horror movies, yes, his ethnicity is also part of that foreshadowing. I'm afraid, but I mean that it's still the eighties, so yeah. <laughs> Nick, do you have any? I, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that this was the eighties because I think some of the the choices in, in I have in my notes are really interesting. But I just want to give you a sec if you had any more thoughts on the Marines and their introduction. No, no, I, I would say that J, I, I appreciate JF's points um, because I mean, a like obviously he was a big fan of this movie when he brought it to the table. Whereas I was kind of you know I was watching it um to sort of experience and uh, i was basically just watching as i watch uh, almost any movie which i guess is slightly brain dead so i just wasn't like as 
like invested in sort of figuring out the 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 why or wherefore of the characters but sort of looking at the background seeing like how turbulent production was and hearing some of what jf was saying like i can appreciate sort of the the effort that was put into the structure of it uh to, to make the characters um function in terms of the script uh even if maybe they didn't win me over on like an emotional level yeah, the Marines all trained together, apparently. Um, they went did a couple weeks of boot camp, which you, you hear about that all the time with movies. With, Except for Michael Bean. Right, yeah, with, with military characters. And like it, I think this is one of the times where I can really safely say like it feels like it pays off. You know, sometimes you hear that, like, they did this, so they would have an extra bond, and like other people would feel left out. And you're just sometimes like, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, but I really do think I felt that in this one. Uh, I also... So going back to the 80s, there was just a couple of things. Like, I, I love uh, when you see modern day reflected in sci-fi, like when they're showing the cameras looking over uh, the colony and it's like it, it's the, the resolution of them is the resolution as they had it in the 1980s. Like they didn't envision we're going to have these crystal clear images later in the future. Uh, but my favorite that I, I wrote this down in my notes was that Someone called it a shake and bake colony, uh, which shake and bake as a phrase, I feel like now uh, is completely dead. Like that was because shake and bake was a thing in the 80s and now it's nothing. But I just love that, like that cultural reflection in the far future of like, we're still going to be saying shake and bake. Right. We're all still going to be smoking. (laughs) I hope we're still saying shake and bake. And we're still smoking on presumably space stations. Oh. The best, yes. the best introduction, the best introduction, though, is a pwn when a pwn wakes up from his cryo chamber. And the first thing he does is just put a cigar right in his mouth, which like, he has that in the pod with him. Uh-huh. It's it's I, I don't think we ever see him with that cigar lit either. No, he's, well, he's one of those guys that chews on it. Yeah. Just a question, how long were they in cryostasis for to get from Earth to the not, planet? Not Earth, Gateway. Come on, man. Gateway. Gateway, I'm yeah. sorry. Well, from, from Gateway to, to LV-426, I would assume slightly under 17 days. Okay, so it was days, not like months or years or anything. With the well, way consider- I'm, I'm, I'm doing my math based on the idea that they were expecting to sent to receive reinforcement after 17 days so it's less than 17 days Uh, because at some point they probably have to send people only after they've been declared overdue which is probably a good 24 hours you're right i didn't pick up on that part but that makes more sense do they i have seen this movie a lot (laughs) (laughs) he knows all the information so then i know a creepy amount i i would be curious about jf's creepy thoughts regarding the the structure of the story as a sequel now when i was watching it the part of my brain that wasn't brain dead was couldn't help but compare it to what i could remember of alien and in the sense that a alien was the first alien was designed as basically a horror slash flick whatever you want to call it and there was like a purpose to sort of building up the thread and you never quite see the alien until i think the climax if i recall and so you see it, it's a big blowout, Ripley wins, yada, yada, yada. But what I felt, as I was watching, I realized I got to about the hour mark. And I think the hour mark was about when shit was like really starting to hit the fan. 
uh, or beginning to hit the fan at least. And excuse me. Um, but I felt like because, you know, presumably the majority of people that see aliens also would have seen alien. And I felt like it took too long to get to actually showing this alien that we've already seen before, you know, as a narrative device. So for me, I wasn't as, I wasn't getting as caught up in the suspense because I kind of already knew what to look for where, and I don't know, and, and maybe I'm just wrong in terms of the assessment. Maybe it still works the way it was, but I think in my mind, I would have wanted the aliens to have been a much more visible threat, at least somewhat earlier in the film. But what are your thoughts? Well, there, there's a couple of things in there. First of all, the, the first movie alien was the rumor is that it was pitched pitched as jaws in space, but the actual structure of the movie is more like a haunted house in space, right. which is kind of why you rely a lot on, on the setting on the actual Nostromo and in where, like the, the environment in which the characters are to create the tension of the horror. Mm -hmm. aliens the sort of the intelligent like the smart move that they made is instead of trying to recreate the exact same genre is they decided to move from a haunted house horror to an action horror thing right and one of the thing about horror this this is a time where jump scares were not the crutch that they are today and basically the idea was mostly like if, if I'm if I look at if I were to have been smarter and better at my job than than I am right now and be the one writing aliens, the reason for the slow reveal is basically to create the stakes, to set what the the situation is and what the stakes are for the characters. Because if you're not relying on jump scares, and this isn't really a body horror thing, like the body horror thing was in the first movie, no one's going to be shocked at a chest burster as much anymore. So you have to rely on making the viewer care for at least a few of the characters hmm. and have the, 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 the internal dynamics of the characters well set before you jump into the, the horror action situation. Hmm. I, okay. I will say I will never not love the scene when the Marines get to the um, the atmosphere processor and the walls start moving. Um, I just I love that scene. I think it is so well done. Uh, also, I just wanted to mention this uh, for Nick and for Phil, who I know who's listening. Hello, Phil. That the atmosphere processor was later used in Batman uh, 1989 for Axis Chemicals. So fun little connection there. <laughs> um there's some stuff that I really like. Like I, I like that it, it kept a little bit of its touch in the horror a little bit. Um, there's a scene where Vasquez and Hudson are uh, they're they're scanning for the aliens because they're you know it's just a few of them left. They're 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 holding down, and uh, the two of them go out to kind of scan to see if anything's out there, and they realize there's a lot of stuff out there. But there's no music in that scene. There was just the sound of the scanner, and I realized the sound of the scanner sounds like a bit like a heart monitor and uh it's you know it's like speeding up and i i'll put a clip of that in here because i really really liked that choice a lot i like that there was no music and just like kind of you know it, it does something like to your own heart like if, if you're in a dark theater and you know you have that sound just really kind of blasting out it's going to have that kind of effect of like making your own heart race like some of the sound choices in this movie are really good. I really liked them. I mean, and it won an Academy Award for it. So, huzzah! 
Yes, good for that. Well done, sound people. <laughs> uh, and I, and I will piggyback on that a little bit. It's that one of the things that uh, that one of the things that caught my attention a lot in the film were the set pieces. And I think sort of Jib, as you said, like how the Nostromo in the first one, you know, there was so much emphasis put on their surroundings to sort of build that tension. Um, even though like the the overall aesthetic of the film is pretty gray and drab, like any of the time they were kind of showing the what the architecture looked like, even though it was a bit brutalist, there was I, I appreciate that it, it was basically all sets. Um, and even for like an 80s level quality of, you know, set design or, or special. Here's the interest. I hate, I hate to cut you off, but here's an interesting oh, anecdote is that when they first showed this to the executives at Fox, the reaction was, hey, you blew your budget on sets. Because like you said, like, wow, the sets were amazing. And a little chuckle behind their, their hands. A lot of these sets are actually miniatures. Yeah. That's how brilliant they were. I got to say, uh, I love miniature sets. Like, uh, I've, you know, between like Star Wars and this, and I think some other movies that I can't recall, but that like the sets may have been small, but because of the tricks you can do with the camera, like the fact that they really still hold up today, uh, I think is a testament to their usefulness in filmmaking. Just saying that. Speaking of. Anyway, sorry, sorry, I cut you off. Go on. Oh, no, it's fair. I, um, the I think based all I was saying was just that I, I was like the, the the set design and like the like there's a lot that we don't know about what this future version of humanity is like overall like we still got corporate you know greed or whatever and um you know bullets <laughs> um and apparently but, shake and bake makes a resurgence somewhere. Shake and bake, I mean shake and bake is eternal people come on like it's never going out of style um but but there was there's something about it that just sort of told me everything that I needed to know as far as the 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 world that they were in, if that makes sense. Jay, if I want to speaking of like some of the design of this movie, I'm, I'm treating you now as an expert of this film. Uh, do you know, was the was the queen mother, the was she also designed um, by H.R. Giger? Uh, no, they didn't bring back H.R. Geiger for uh, for the sequel. The Queen is designed by was designed by uh, Stan Winston Studios and probably Stan Winston himself back in the day. With I'm I'm gonna guess just because of his personality, James Cameron probably heavily supervised that design. <laughs> it's a good design. I mean, I think it's I think it's very in line with with the uh, what the Xenomorphs and what came before. It's 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 a gorgeous design because it really picks up on all the hints of the biology of the alien from the first movie and expands it. Like it just does that little bit of world building yes. that keeps it interesting without feeling like they're just forcing too much information. And the the only negative about the Queen is that it set this trend that every alien movie afterward needs to add a new version of right. the creature which is not a necessity it <sighs> works fine as is yeah but that's what we have now i was thinking about that this time was like it, it, it does a really good job of because you know you have this question of well where do these things come from and they answer that cleverly by saying like well okay it comes from a bigger one of them uh where does it come from originally it doesn't matter but I, I like i did like that little bit of expansion just like like let's just make it a little bit the mythology just a little bit bigger 
Exactly. And borrowing from the insect kingdom was really a stroke of genius. It was a very good idea because insects up close are super creepy. <laughs> and they do say it's a bug hunt, which I mean, that's borrowed from Heinlein, but it's every, everything about it is just a logical expansion on, on the mythos, like on the mythology of the alien and the xenomorph. Whereas what comes after and especially going forward, like with Alien Resurrection, is just trying to shoehorn as much new action figure worthy creatures as possible. Yeah. Um, I wonder if Bug Hunt 2 is sort of coming from uh, Starship Troopers, because I know that was uh, uh, James Cameron made them all read Starship Troopers before making the movie, which honestly makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and even the power loader is sort of inspired by the uh, like the exoskeletons from the not from the movie, but from the book Starship Troopers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I did get a Starship Troopers vibe. I was thinking about it earlier, just sort of offhand, and I realized that there's a lot of DNA, I suppose, between them. Even though Starship Troopers is a bit more out in the open and bombastic. Really, I mean, and this we're not talking about the Starship Troopers movie here, but I actually have a lot of positive thoughts on that. Um, I want to go back to the the power loader. Because that was, I thought, uh, something they did a, a great job of foreshadowing. You know, they have her talk about like, yeah, I'm working down at the docks. And then like when they're unloading stuff, they show like, OK, they show her she knows how to use it. And then that great scene at the end uh, when the the door opens up and there's Ripley in the in the power loader and saying the one of the most iconic lines, in my opinion, from all of cinema. Get away from her, you bitch. And then just getting into a punching fight with the queen i love it and and it's very like by the numbers screenwriting or storytelling in, in the sense like you have a slight hint with her mentioning it then you demonstrate it and then you use it like one two punch yeah it's perfect oh it works so well after poor bishop got stabbed right in the chest oh, poor bishop nice henrickson like lance henrickson was almost going to quit acting if this movie was not didn't work out because he was doing a lot of not so great work like his the roles that he was getting before uh i think they were considered journeyman roles and this was like he was hoping this would be kind of his break and it, it sort of cemented him as, as a a genre uh superstar for for horror and then he goes on to make pumpkin head do not diss on pumpkin i'm not head. dissing on pumpkin head <laughs> It's not a perfect movie. I'm just saying, but it's what he did made after this. Very good with Lance Henriksen in it. Oh, oh, 100%. That, that movie is nothing without Lance Henriksen. So, uh, oh man, there's a lot of other stuff I want to, like Paul Reiser in this movie. Burke what is, an odd yet brilliant choice. It really is. Nick, you're a big Paul Reiser fan, right? Um, Which one was Paul Reiser? <laughs> Burke. Burke. <laughs> oh, Burke. He, oh, man, what else have we seen him in? Uh, mad, mad about, about you, you. <laughs> stranger oh, okay. things whiplash wait he was in stranger things and uh in season two he's uh the doctor that you think is going to be a bad guy but ends up being like actually oh, a really good guy oh my gosh you're right it's been a long time since i've seen season two but like i wow like it's just like burned into my brain all of a sudden like i can see that they're the same person even though they're decades apart holy crap and uh, hey, that that season largely influenced by aliens. So there you that's go. True. Um, wow. Okay, that's 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 interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, Burke Burke was definitely one of those characters where I mean, you kind of see when I when he first came on the screen, like I thought he was going to be a bit more of a sympathetic character, 
Um, but nope. sort of like once it was clear, like how sort of ingrained in the corporate hierarchy he was and his interests, like I knew that like he was going to be a, you know, a problem at some point in the film. And clearly he was, but to, to, to the actor's credit, like Burke was a character's personality definitely stand out. Yeah. He sucks. Yeah. yeah he's got an interesting arc. I thought like the first time I saw him, I, I didn't think he'd stick around, but then he shows up like he's on, he's on the ship and say, all right, well he's going to die quick and he doesn't. And then he slowly becomes like a much more nefarious character. Yeah. Because he's he's so supportive of of Ripley the entire time, like when she's you know dissing out on, on Gorman for being incompetent, he supports her. Like everything about him seems like kind of okay until it starts sliding in the wrong direction. Yeah, because there's that great reversal from the first movie, which is like all the humans are the ones you can trust, but you have the the synthetic uh, in the first movie that ends up being kind of the the other antagonistic force next to the alien itself. In this movie, you have Ripley the whole time not trusting Bishop because he's as a, a synthetic and putting a lot of trust in Burke. And then, like, as the movie goes on, Burke's the one that puts her and Newt in a chamber with face huggers and is like, all right, go get infected. The worst. What a jerk. I want to talk about what doesn't hold up after all these years. What, you know, it's uh, this movie is uh, 30 some odd years old now. What, and I'm not just talking about like special effects, because there's a couple shots in here, you know, where obviously like the lightning, uh, when everything is getting ready to explode. The lightning is definitely painted on the cells yeah. in that. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's not as bad as lightning in, say, the Highlander movies, which is just the worst <laughs> cartoonish lightning in the world. But it's clearly not great. Yeah. No, That's... you know, I, uh, I really liked the 80s lightning aesthetic. Like, I get, I think especially working with like the miniature sets and all that, like I liked how just, I don't know, there was something about the aesthetic of it that, that just tickled me, I guess. Like, yeah, I mean, I get, but it's not as bad as if it was like CGI lightning for the time. Right. It's still kind of timeless in a way, even if it's maybe dated compared to what we can accomplish now. Um, but I, I really liked how it worked with the overall atmosphere. No, it's, it's definitely not the worst thing. Uh, I mean, the technology used we've talked about it like some of the cultural cultural references the technology like the computers that they use are like are antiquated but that feels almost excusable but then there's some of the green screen with dropship that's a little iffier yeah Yeah. it's a little little rough um oh when like oh and like when the dropship is flying and it like opens up and some some extra parts come out of it like that that didn't look amazing it looks cool, but you can see like it's definitely a model. Yeah, but it's a cool model. It's a, it's a, it is a cool model. Uh, I mean, there's there's some stuff that I think is really held up great from this movie. Like the character of Ripley, I will always back as as being one of the greatest uh, characters in cinema. But I, I just uh, special effects stuff aside, like what what stuff um, for either of you for all of us watching it this time just didn't didn't hit in the way that maybe it was intended to or maybe it has in the past and, and now that we're all a little bit older it's it's a bit different um the character of vasquez yes would not work today not at mostly all. because 
I mean, it, it, she's played by by Janet Goldstein, who does an amazing job. She does a great job, but it is it is it's brown face to begin with. Um, they did have to put like to color her skin to make her look a little bit more more Latino, and the emphasis, like the 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 illegal alien line from Hudson, mm-hmm. is not great. Yes. But at the same time, and this is one of those places. Well, first of all, like obviously it's of its time, so I guess it gets a pass. But also, it is the kind of comment that even today you'd sort of expect that level of disrespect and racism in the armed forces, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, that was the line that stuck out to me too, as kind of the big. Aside from, and I don't want to say it doesn't hold up, but just on this watch, I was way more critical of it. Again, Paxton. I would. I wanted to punch him, uh, but good job, Paxton, on making a, a punchable character. Uh, but yeah, her her line and definitely that line about like, oh, they heard, she heard alien and thought illegal alien. I just, got, you know, you kind of white knuckle in that moment. It's the sad thing. Like on on one end, it feels like it's very jarring in today's environment to hear that kind of line. But the saddest thing is when you analyze it and you realize, yeah, it probably makes conversation in the military feel really authentic and yeah that sucks yeah that, that might be the depressing part of it nick was there anything for you i mean this was your first time seeing aliens what what for you you know you hear us over here being like ah, oh, aliens but what for you wasn't so great um i mean i kind of as i expressed earlier like i just wasn't as engaged with the Marines, like now sort of in, in retrospect and hearing like what JF was saying, like I can appreciate sort of like their use script wise, but because people like say uh, Paxton's Hudson, right? I think he was Hudson, mm-hmm. um, you yeah. know, were so obnoxious and in other cases they were just, you know, and maybe this is just after seeing, you know, all the military movies or whatever, and just the general perception, you know, that's come since this movie, like they, they, they just kind of fell flat for me. Um, whereas I guess I had, I would have hoped for more of an emotional connection with the, for people like I get that they are canning fodder, but I guess for my taste and this, so this is completely subjective. Like if I'm going to watch like two hours of people being murdered, like I might as well care about them. Uh, <laughs> it's a weird sentence when you kind of say it out of context. Um, but in this case, like I, I did enjoy Ripley. Sigourney Weaver does a fantastic job. Uh, and, and I appreciate the emotional bond at the heart of the film. I just wish that I guess that there was more of that. I get that. And I, but I will say that the scene where um, Vasquez is injured and about to go out and Gorman goes back to her and he know he goes back knowing like I'm dead, you know, this is, this is it for me. And they have just a moment together before the two of them die. I won't I wouldn't say that like my emotional bond with them was so strong, but there's something about their, their interplay in that scene that, I really felt it. I don't know. I feel I feel that the emotional investment is commensurate to the importance of the character in the story. Like mm-hmm. Gor- Gorman and Vasquez last that long, and they have obviously we have more of an investment in their arc than say Frost or Warbowski, who die immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, the I mean, we get a bit of an emotional investment because you can see that Mount Michael Bean's character Hicks does care about like he's probably a more sensitive character even though he's he's a consummate professional he seems to have more 
more motion, more sensitivity than the other Marines. And, and we do get attached to that. Mm. So I, I, I feel that we don't get over-invested in characters that don't have as complex an arc in the story, mm. which, which in a way is kind of a failure because if they would have made us say care more, like if they would have tricked us into really being invested in Vasquez and in her relationship with the dead Drake and all that, having her like, it would have made us expect that she would survive more and then having her die would be more of a shock. Mm. But I don't, I don't think back in the eighties, the idea of like pulling a Ned Stark on viewers <laughs> was as important to studios as, as it is right now. Mm-hmm. I think there was more focus on on main characters, like on having a good rewarding arc for main characters instead of just tricking viewers into assuming a certain direction and then pulling the rug from under their feet. Good point. Yeah. I'm just I'm also I'm just looking at Michael Bean's uh just his his work history right now. This that this is a busy guy. This guy's hustling. Good for him. I Honestly, like I feel that James Cameron has a special ultrasound whistle that he uses <laughs> to call Michael Bean to set whenever he needs him because he's in and he gets like a lot of very cool roles. Like he plays coffee in the abyss. Like he's the villain yeah. uh, in he's he's in the Terminator movies at least once. He's in aliens like when James Cameron needs someone to do something not necessarily you know front man role but something fun like he's he draws a circle on the ground burns the offerings and summons michael bean <laughs> michael bean appears uh and yes. he, he's going and we don't know what role yet but i'm seeing he's going to be in mandalorian season two so i'm excited to see what that's gonna be that make may make me watch the mandalorian <laughs> <laughs> we are almost out of time but before before we are i I just really quick. I wanted to I have another hour of material. I know, man. <laughs> I there's there's so we could get into specifics so much on this, but I I want to ask this question, and I alluded to it earlier, which is, Alien and Aliens are really well loved. They are really lauded, and because of that, there have been several other movies that have been made to various degrees of reception. Most of them cold. What is it about these first two films that make that make you know people keep coming back and and wanting more and hoping for better? I feel that the first two movies focused they had a good balance of world building and character development. The the first movie has very little world building. Like it really just establishes what it needs to establish to have that haunted house feeling to to like to the to the the, the story, and then it focuses on the relationship between some of the main characters, especially Ripley, like Ripley, Dallas, Ash, all these characters. Like you can see that you know Ripley cares for her crew, and seeing the crew get decimated slowly has an impact on her, but also at the same time pushes her her um her drive for survival the second movie is again it doesn't lose its way it does a little bit more of the world building but it really like it nests it into the first movie's world building adds a little bit more but again focuses on the character focuses on ripley's arc and her development and and how she you know 
progresses through her history. Like she's got like her PTSD arc. She's got the family arc, all of it, like the, the duality of her wanting to be a good mother and protect Newt versus the mother of the alien trying to do the exact same thing. Like there's, there's a mirror image there. That's very well done. And starting from there, we lose the character aspect more and more with every movie. Like the third movie, everything from the second movie gets thrown out the door. So we lose all that emotional investment that was built up in Aliens. It gets completely wiped out and nothing nothing replaces it really. Hmm. Nothing changes it. She doesn't like Ripley doesn't have really any relationship with the inmates on 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 the the the, the, the penal kind of colony. So the human aspect gets removed and they just try to inject as much world building as possible. And I mean, that's a bit on the screenwriter. Alien 4, Alien Resurrection is zero character. There's some interesting character ideas, but they never get expanded. The like, I, I feel that the director did as well as he could with the absolute worst, most childish script that he got on his desk. <laughs> and and I get that this is a Joss Whedon thing, but Joss Whedon absolutely freaking phoned it in. It's it's a hack job, and he should he should be ashamed of himself for having it. <laughs> it just goes downhill afterwards for for every other movie. Even when Ridley Scott returns, it just never gets that human element back. Interesting, Nick. Do you have any any ideas? Anything yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to step on JF's toes when he obviously is a lot more invested in Been thinking it. about it for years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I and I feel like I, I made this comment um, earlier, but the like you know, it's a similar thing with with Terminator, where like at, like the first two films are highly regarded, and then after that, it's like a constant attempt to reinvent itself to as if like it's this concept that has merit it definitely does right but yet every attempt to relaunch it to have it resonate with the people of today doesn't it doesn't seem to have the same effect as it did back when it came out and it's you know you can think of say like superhero you know not necessarily the movies i suppose but even the comic books that have constantly reinvented themselves and even though comic books end of themselves you know, aren't as popular as they were way back in the day. Like those characters are still incredibly popular. So even though Peter Parker is still doing the same thing over and over and over again, like there's some enduring quality about it. Whereas like, it's almost like, yes, I guess one thing that I liked about the alien films, the, the first two at least is that there's this, this hint of like this greater world that they're like, of course there's gotta be this mysterious origin around the aliens or, you know, however earth evolved or humans evolved in order to you know create this interstellar travel and so on and so forth like there's all these things that like there's obviously a history there and a weight there but they don't necessarily need to be explained and so this constant attempt to like go back to the well and expand on something that doesn't necessarily need to be expanded on because at its core it's an action flick or a horror flick and it's sort of like what you see on the screen is what you get um because we've already seen that maybe there just isn't as much a need to keep revisiting that pool. Um, maybe something along those lines. Yeah. I... Like cake is great. And it's fun to know that there's chocolate cake and there's vanilla cake, but I don't need to know the recipe for cake to still think that cake is great. <laughs> right. Right. I'm thinking about cake a lot lately also. <laughs> I, I agree with the both of you. And I think there's a little bit too, where these two movies changed so much of of the game and really kind of like set all these precedents and became templates for other movies where 
other sequels just haven't done that. They haven't pushed the envelope in the way that these the first two have, and thus they just don't have that that same impact because they're not showing us things we haven't seen before. They're showing us things we've seen before, and just because you put xenomorphs in there and Ripley in there doesn't make it special. Right. Exactly. Like, it's not because you've decided, well, this xenomorph comes from a dog, so he looks a bit like a dog. That's not that's not interesting. What would be interesting for Alien 3 would have been, well, how does how does Ripley protect a wounded Hicks and a child in a penal colony while there's an alien infestation? That's interesting. Agreed. Uh, Having her be infected by an alien queen, much less so. Yeah. Alien 3, and we're never going to... I mean, somebody might be nostalgic for it. Who knows? We'll see. Well, Bring me in, and I'll argue them. I'll fight them on the show. Okay, <laughs> I'll remember that. This is the part of the show, though, where now we, uh, we wrap it all up. We, we wrap up our thoughts. Does this movie stay in the Hall of Memories, or is it worth visiting today? This seems like one where we've been a bit obvious on it, but still, good time to summarize all our thoughts. JF, what do you think? I mean, I pulled out my book from my, my Aliens RPG adventure book and my our, my Aliens board game from Leading Edge, a company that does not exist anymore. So I clearly have a bias, but I, I rewatched a movie just yesterday to have it fresh, although I can probably cite it line for line. And it, apart from a few things that we've discussed, it holds up. It is still an extremely well-written movie, so I want to keep it. <laughs> All right, Nick, you hated it, so go ahead and just uh, tell ah, us rip it apart, garbage. I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think it's a movie that ultimately can still be revisited today, despite maybe some of the consternations I had while watching it um structurally there's there's it's 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 certainly not worse than anything that's come out today and that's not i don't mean that as a sort of a negative or a passive <laughs> negative to it um uh, like i said i really enjoyed the set pieces i enjoyed the emotional arc of ripley um the action was was at the very least serviceable uh and certainly i think that that the those initial alien films alien and aliens and the 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 i don't know what the word i'm looking for is mythology is the wrong word but just sort of in the greater scheme of like science fiction and horror like they're clearly very important staples um so i think especially if you're someone that's trying to explore sort of why things are the way they are today like certainly elements from alien and aliens you know that their dna is clearly felt across the generations i'll agree with that i think so much of this of sci-fi today has been influenced by alien and aliens and you know i watching it this time i still even even with a more critical eye and finding stuff that i thought maybe didn't work as well or maybe was a little bit more troublesome i still walked away from it and, and just really enjoying it in the scenes that i mentioned earlier like when the walls start to move when the marines first encounter the xenomorphs gets me every time the the heartbeat sound of the monitors, like just really built really good tension. You know, James, just that quiet little scene where Hicks is just poking his head through the ceiling, just oh, turning yes. the lamp and you see all these aliens crawling in the ceiling. That's that is some, some creepy ass stuff. One of my favorite shots in the whole movie. If, if not my so favorite shot, uh, you know, James Cameron, for as much as we 
avatar, you know, for as much as that is a thing, and we all kind of make fun of him for it now, did so much and, and, and has the reputation. Doing his best. Yeah. He had the reputation he had because of Terminator, because of Aliens, and it's deserved. You know, I, I can't I can't disparage and say, no, don't like Aliens anymore, because you should. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us. JF, I want to thank you for being here. I, I mean, I can keep going, guys. I, I swear, <laughs> I have so much material. <laughs> we, you know, maybe we'll, no, uh, we'll do a part oh, two at, at some point. Uh, but right, to- because I don't have anything else I'm nostalgic for. So if you guys need to bring me back, it's <laughs> uh, that's it. This is this is the only well. It runs deep, but it is uh, it's narrow. Uh, Perfect. Maybe. We'll come back and watch Prometheus. <laughs> or alternate his alternate idea. Hear me out. We don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, until we do that and trick you into being on here and being like surprise it's prometheus where can people check you out what are you up to uh i'd rather people not check me out i am a horror to behold however they can check out my work if you go to amazon and you search for jf dubo you will find either the life engineered my sci-fi book or you will find a god in the shed my horror book or you may also find Song of the Sandman, the sequel to A God in the Shed, which comes out early 2021. However, if you would rather hear a voice that doesn't have the lisp I've discovered I have recently and is actually pleasant to hear but is still my writing, you can check out Aquilo at aquilo.com or wherever you get your podcasts for this cozy horror we discussed at the beginning. It's one of my favorite projects these days. I get to work with Amy Frost, who does the narration. She is brilliant. She brings the story and the characters to life in a way that is just magical. And so far, people seem to enjoy it. So get on the bandwagon. Yeah, I please. talked it up Talked it up last week when Amy was on here. I'm going to talk it up again. People should be listening to Aquilo. It's great. I just got my Aquilo cup in the mail. Oh, yeah. You guys have a lot of new merch. Oh, we just got on Redbubble because a lot of people were asking, hey, where can I get some? Because we're, we're not good at doing the whole making money off of Aquilo thing. So people were asking for stuff. So we, we found a place that made aprons and we got some stuff. That's great. Nick, thank you for being here as always. Where am I? <laughs> just where... kidding. You are under the bridge with me and keeping warm from that burning <laughs> barrel of garbage. The Wi-Fi is great. It is great Wi-Fi for Bridge. Well, just be six <laughs> feet apart, you two. Nick, where can people find you? Find out what you do. You have like, do you have a do you have an art uh, Instagram that you're constantly updating? No, I feel like Phil Rude kind of like keeps like pointing out that I have an art Instagram, but I've really never heard of it. Uh, so for now, you can definitely find me at at Nick Shermooks. That's S E R M U K S N I S on Twitter. Uh, and, and like I say, every time hit me up if you ever want to talk. I didn't even mention how sketching out Xenomorph is what got me into art in the first place. Well, you just did right there. I so know, but that's from if, saying there's just so much. So you're saying if we go back in time and prevent you from watching the Alien franchise... I'll go into medicine and have a good life instead <laughs> of whatever's happening right now. So are you saying we should... Or what? Like, what do we do? Please. I'm now. I'm confused. Save me. <laughs> uh, this is like the 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 girl who's 
uh, cocooned on the wall, whispering "Kill me!" But just before a chest buster. <laughs> yes, David, that, that was a reference, David. Yeah. Okay. Well, people can find me online <laughs> under the username Davlos. That is D A V L U Z. You can find me on Twitter. I want to thank you, listening audience, for being a part of it. We couldn't do this show without you, and we do it for you. Remember, you can't move forward if you're always looking back. We'll see you next time. Discovered in cryosleep 57 years after the xenomorph attacked, attacked, blah, blah, blah. Discovered in cryosleep 57 years after the xenomorph attack on the Nostromo. Thank you, whoever edited that. I'm going to take this one more time. I don't know why I cannot read right now.